A man who's described as a man after God's own heart. Yet from chapter 18 onwards, it has been non-stop pursuit of Saul wanting to kill him for no wrongdoing of his own at all. Now, if anyone's entitled to a life free from suffering and difficulty, surely Jesus would be that one. Yet Jesus was actively persecuted by by the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus himself and the New Testament writers said, it is necessary, it was written, that the Son of God must suffer. And given that all of the Bible points us to Jesus, we shouldn't be at all surprised that David, who is a foreshadow pointing us to the Christ, Jesus Christ, that he too would also suffer. Now last week, as Saul is pursuing David, we saw David being a little bit shifty, or actually a lot shifty, He started to lean upon his own scheming and plans to get himself out of things, even if it meant he lied to people to do that, before coming to his senses and saying, I will wait and I will see what God will do. It's not about what I can do for God, it's about what God will do and trust in him alone. Thankfully, he's learned from that lesson. As we look through chapter 23, he continues to trust He continues to wait on the leading of the Lord. And in the middle of the stress and the calamity of everything going on, he experiences God's rescue. And at the same time, is teaching us how to trust God in the middle of that hardship. So as we work through chapter 23, even though the heading doesn't say chapter 23, I just noticed, we learn to think of others We learn what we need most in verses 15 to 18 and we look at the rock of escape in 19 to 29. Thinking of others. Now, if you've been awake for any of the recent sermons in 1 Samuel, you would be very well aware David's life's been tough. He has been persecuted and pursued with passion by Saul. And if you're in the same position you would probably ask the question that David commonly asks in his Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long will this go on? Will Saul want to keep pursuing and killing me? And it's not even because of anything that David's done wrong. Back in chapter 20, David asked Jonathan, his best friend, but also Saul's son, What have I done that I've so enraged your father that he wants to kill me? He even says to Jonathan, if I've done something wrong, you kill me. Don't don't waste your father's time. So it's not because David's done something wrong. It's because Saul is eager for power. He's jealous of the fact they were singing songs that Saul's killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He wants David gone because he sees him as competition, a threat to his rule. Now you put yourself in David's shoes. You've done nothing wrong 
The king of the nation is so passionately pursuing you to have you wiped out. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would probably have my mind constantly consumed by the injustice of what's going on. Why me? Why would would this man be king, be doing this to me? And chapter 23 begins with the people telling David that Keilah is under attack by the Philistines. You see, they're in the middle, down the bottom. Now, if you were David, and a group of people say to you, the Philistines are attacking some of the people, how easy would it be to snap back and say, so what? That's what enemies do. Enemies oppose people. You shouldn't be surprised. And... I'm not the king of this nation. Saul was given the job to protect and look after these people. I've got enough on my plate. This wonderful king that's supposed to be protecting the people is trying to kill me. No thanks. That's a natural sort of instinctive human response. But it's not David's response. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David's under constant threat. But when he hears about a threat amongst fellow countrymen, his natural instinct is, I want to help. Even if that means going into territory, which is Saul's territory. Not only going into territory of Saul's territory, but the territory of the enemies of the nation of Israel. But he cares for the people. Now I know psychologists often say that often when you're going through a hard time one of the best things you can do is help other people and that's a true statement. But I don't think David's motivated by some self-help or psychology book that he's read and think, oh, this is going to do me good, I'll go do that. It's just something that instinctively comes out of his love for a people and his desire to act. And he's not even presuming that it's his job to fix the situation. He he inquires of the Lord and says, should I go and attack the Philistines? Now God approves of the plan. says, go and attack them. Go and save Kilo. So God thinks it's a great idea. But David's men, not so much. They're like, are you kidding? It's, It's hard enough for where we are now You want to go into Saul's territory and go up against an enemy nation? They're like, you've got to be kidding. I think that rattles David a little bit. Initially, he's got the thumbs up from God. Go and do it. But what if his own people aren't keen? So he goes back again and inquires of the Lord and gets a more expansive answer in response. The Lord answers, go. So again, he's sending him out. Go down to Keilah. For I will give the Philistines into your hand. So previously David was commanded to go. But now not only is he again repeatedly commanded to go, it's accompanied by a promise of God of, I will deliver them into your hands. The commands and promises of God go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. 
The command says what we are to do and the promise of God is the assurance that God has provided everything you need in dependence on him to carry that out. You need these things. They go hand in hand. To emphasise one at the expense of the other will always lead you down a very dangerous path. For example, if you emphasise the command, it becomes all about what I can do for God. I need to do it because he said I'm going to do it in my strength. If it comes all about the promise of God, then that can lead to inaction, thinking, well, God says he's going to do this. Let him go, let him do it. We should walk in obedience with complete dependence upon the God who promises to supply all of our needs for the things that he promises, for the things that he commands. Think of that in the context of the Great Commission. The command is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And the promise that goes with it, and behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. It is the promise that he will be with us, that he has all authority in heaven and earth, that it gives us the absolute assurance that we can go. It doesn't depend upon my ability. The end result, no surprise for David, is he does save the people of Keilah. But the strange thing is that when God first called out and identified Saul, he said, this man will rescue my people from the Philistines. So while the Philistines are attacking the people at Keilah, his people, what on earth is Saul doing? Well, we don't know what he is doing, but we do know what he does when he hears about it. When he hears about it, there's no celebration of, wow, my people have been saved from the Philistines. There's no celebration about the Philistines being defeated. There's no concern that he, the ruler of the people, hadn't acted to protect them. No, his one and only response, when he heard, Saul said, God has given him, that's David, into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. He is so consumed with his desire to have David killed, that's the only thing that crosses his mind. Not, not about the defeat of the Philistines or the saving of his own people. Here is a chance to kill David. He's locked in. Even going so far as to say, God has done this for me. Saul had his sources to find out where David was. David appears to have even better sources. He hears that Saul is coming his way to come and get him. Now, presumably, he's probably heard this through either Gad, the seer, or Abiathar, the priest. Now, he's learned one thing over the, over the last couple of weeks. He's learned not to rely upon his craftiness, his cunning and deceitful plans. So he asks Abiathar, the priest, to bring the ephod. Not because he's cold and he's like, oh, I need to put something else on. Not because there's something magical about the ephod itself. But the high priest's ephod in the breastplate would have these stones, the Urim and Thummim. And they were used almost like casting dice, so to speak, as a way of discerning the will of God 
on matters. David's got two questions that he wants God's leading upon. The first is, will Saul come here? And secondly, if Saul does come here, will these people hand me over to Saul? And the answer to both of those questions was, yes, Saul will indeed come and these people will hand you over. Now that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? David has just saved these people from the Philistines, yet they would willingly give David over to Saul if he was to stay there. It sounds strange, but not so much in the context of what we saw last week. Remember when David went to the priest at Nob and he lied to him and says, I'm on a secret mission from the king. And so the priest provided him with all sorts of things like food and the sword. And when Saul hears about that, he commands the execution of all of the priests. And then Dougie, who carries it out, goes all out and then kills pretty much the entirety of the town. So you can imagine, if people hear about that, they're thinking... We don't want to be associated with this, David. We've seen how Saul has reacted in the past, so it makes sense as to why they'd hand them over. They don't want the same thing to happen to them. So David concludes, all he can do is leave. Saul gives up the chase knowing that he's gone. But David is just constantly wandering from place to place. When it says in strongholds, you shouldn't think about like a military fort, just natural geographical places that are easy to defend where you could see an enemy approaching. But what I do like is the little cheeky note from the narrator in verse 14. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Remember back in verse 7? Saul quite confidently said, God has given David into my hand. And the narrator's like, the, he tried and tried and tried. God didn't do that. Saul was so keen on seeing David kill himself, that was all he could see. And because that was his own passionate desire, he had no idea what God wanted. It's what, he, it's what Saul wanted to do, and he just kind of thought he'd bring God's name on board. That's probably a good warning ongoing to not speak presumptuously that God will do this or God said he's going to do this, unless you're absolutely certain. Now, poor old David, he's on the run. Like Jesus, he's got no place to lay his head. You think, when's this guy going to get a break? Well, he's about to get a visit from his BFF, Jonathan, Saul's own son. How would a friend help someone in a position like David's. Now, if you didn't have the passage in front of you and and you heard about the scenario and I said to you, what would be the right thing to do? What would be the best thing to do? What does David really need? Now, modern context, someone might say, oh, this guy just needs a good holiday. Take, Take a break from all the stress that's been going on. Maybe you need to bring around a good care package. Maybe you need to get him some grand final tickets for the AFL. Yes, I do realise that none of those examples would have crossed anyone's mind in the ancient culture that we're speaking about. However, what Jonathan did offer and did do in that ancient context is exactly 
what all of God's people need, even in today's context. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David and Horus and strengthened his hand in the Lord. That's what he went to do. He went to strengthen him in the Lord. God's children do not need to be distracted by something else more fun. Yes, take their eyes and attention off the situation, but direct them to the Lord God, the one who is sovereign over all situations. Jonathan strengthened David in God. That should be our first priority as we seek to encourage and minister to one another in our deepest and darkest times also. If we would put anything else forefront in our ministry to one another, it would be like going to someone on death row and say, here, have a block of caramilk. Sure, it's delicious, but it does nothing to deal with the problem. And specifically the way in which Jonathan encouraged him in the Lord, he says those famous words, do not fear. Not because there's nothing scary going on around him, but because he knew that God would save him. He knew that Saul would not find David, that David would become king, and that Jonathan would serve beside David. Now, initially that sounds a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like Jonathan's calling dibs in the kingdom. I want the special spot. But in reality, it's actually quite a humble gesture. Because who is the legitimate next heir to the throne when Saul dies? Jonathan. Yet rather than presuming that's his right to take hold of, he says, I will serve David. We all need a good friend like Jonathan. He was committed. He was faithful. He pointed David constantly to to God. and And he established that with covenant on three separate occasions. And this is the last time we actually hear from Jonathan. The next time we hear from Jonathan is in chapter 31 when he is killed by the Philistines. David's still hiding in Horash in the wilderness of Ziph, the land of Judah, the southern part. And here we lead to the final verses, the rock of escape. This is the area which David is from. He's from the south. If anyone should be behind David, these people should be the ones. But they are just like everybody else. Their first instinct is, I know what happened at Nob. We are not going to put ourselves in a situation where someone comes and wipes us all out. We're going and we're telling Saul straight away where David is. They give Saul all the exact precise information about where David can be found and happily say, we'll lead you to him. I think even Saul's a little bit over it by this point in time. Like he's already had an occasion where he's been told exactly where David was and it didn't work out. So he kind of sets them a challenge. Go back. Find all of the places that he goes to. Every place that he's inclined to visit. Like this is the earliest record we have of contact tracing. Then Saul says, then I'll come on down. And while David's at the rock, no, some natural stronghold, some rocky mountain, Saul is in pursuit. 
Now, if you're a movie director, this would be a great spot for the, for the drone shots where here's David and his men on one side of the hill and then you've got Saul's men coming from the other side, but probably in like a pincer movement where they're both closing in from the north and the south, all coming to a climax where they come in both sides in on David. And just when they get to that point where the dramatic music's all pumping up and it's about to happen, a messenger comes and informs Saul that the Philistines are attacking the people. He can't just say, not my job, put his fingers in his ears, say, la, 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 not listening. Saul leaves to go combat against the Philistines. God had provided that messenger in that whole situation to save and rescue David. It looked like from a military perspective, it was all over. There's nothing David and his men could do about it. But David's God could, and he did. And we're told, therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. When Jonathan came to David, he didn't just give him an optimistic outlook. He didn't give him just like a pep talk as, nah, my dad won't get you, just as a way of saying, I hope all goes good. He spoke truth. He knew what the situation would be. Saul wouldn't find David. God orchestrated things in such a way that the Philistines would attack at the time, the messenger would come to Saul, and David would be free. When we read through the Old Testament, there are lots of times when God acts for the benefit of his people and they they either make an altar or they name that place as a way of memorising what God has done. So in future generations, when they walk past this rock of rescue or rock of division, they can tell the story of how that God had saved David. In the same way as any friend who asks you, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Provide you that same opportunity to speak of what God has done to rescue you. Save through suffering. When you think about how highly the Bible speaks of David, you would think, this guy deserves to have a life full of goodness and blessing and an easy life. But it would be foolish to think that a happy, prosperous life is the sign that someone is in favour with God. That's not the way you describe Jesus. It's not the way you describe David. It's not the way you describe the 12 disciples or apostles. It's not the way you describe the experience of the early Christians. But you would say that all of them were abundantly blessed by God, even in the middle of their greatest hardships. For David, in the middle of his own active pursuit from Saul, when he hears about the struggles of his own people, he doesn't think for a second of the threat to his own life by going to that situation. Because when his people are under attack, how could you do nothing? Even before knowing what God was going to do to save them, David was keen. He wanted to go. He still had ongoing threat. Had no place to lay his head just like Jesus, he said. He was constantly on the run. You could be tempted to think, has God just kind of lost track of David? Or is he, is he forgot to do something? 
This is David. David who is the anointed one. That word translated anointed can mean Messiah in the Hebrew or, or Christ in the Greek. He was designed to be the one who foreshadows Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised the, the anointed one who foreshadows the future and greater anointed Messiah and Christ would suffer. Jesus was always under threat by the Jewish leaders. Even when he set his face towards Jerusalem, even Jesus' own closest followers says, no, it shouldn't be. And Jesus has to constantly remind them, have you not heard, have you not read? It was written that the Christ must suffer. Our only hope, our only salvation is through Jesus Christ who suffered on our behalf. Who suffered, who bore the consequences, the punishment of death on behalf of us, a guilty, rebellious people. Who rose victorious, who seated at the right hand of the Father, who is reigning over all of creation. Jesus wasn't ignorant. He knew exactly where he was headed. He knew exactly that there would be suffering. He didn't try to weasel his way out of it. Even some of the people who mocked him on the cross kind of suggested that maybe he should. He knew that for salvation to come to mankind who had been separated from a relationship with God required him to suffer, bear their death on their behalf. Suffering is not your enemy. It wasn't Jesus' enemy, it's not your enemy. Often it is a means that God uses for our good. Now that doesn't mean like some that I've seen who seem to like actively pursue suffering as though somehow they feel like they're being more godly if they're being suffering and they're being ridiculed in many different ways. I don't think they're told to pursue it, but nor are we told that we should avoid it. Both David and Jesus went head first straight towards suffering because of what was at stake. For David, he went straight in there because his own fellow countrymen were under threat. Jesus went straight towards Jerusalem because the salvation of people was at stake. We see a time when he looked upon the people and had compassion upon them. He said, because they were like a lost people, a people without a shepherd. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy of setting people free from their slavery to sin, death and Satan, he gladly endured the suffering on the cross because of what it would achieve. Our response isn't to flee either. We see the model in David, we see the model in Jesus. In our suffering, we entrust ourselves to the one who is in control of all things. Peter spoke this way of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Life isn't always easy. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin in every way. We live in a world that is hostile to Christ. Even Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you. Difficulty in this life is actually a guarantee. But in the middle of that, we don't run from it. We look to God. We entrust ourselves to him that he might achieve his good and perfect purposes and maybe even refine us more into the character of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is hope in the middle of the mess. We see mess all around us in this world in which we live. We thank you that Jesus Christ has not only conquered sin, our greatest enemy, but Lord, we thank you that we can be, have union with Christ. The very spirit who rose Christ from the dead dwells within his people who turn to him in faith. We thank you that you can be trusted in even the most difficult situation that we ever find ourselves within. We thank you that in your word we have countless examples of how you have been faithful to protect, to guide and transform your people even through suffering. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond well, to respond in faithfulness. But Lord, we pray too as we minister to one another in our dark times that we would have the same heart that Jonathan has to encourage and strengthen one another in the Lord to take people's eyes off their situations and to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. In whose name we pray, amen.